si escuchas Crazy Outham, es muy loco, ¿ok? Gente... Welcome everyone, you're listening to KUCR on 88.3 FM, also streaming online at KUCR.org. This is Daniel with the Deer Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to speak with attorney Pascual Torres. We'll talk about police violence, police reform, the law, and the current movement to address police violence in our communities. This conversation was recorded prior to the shooting and killing of Andres Guardado in Los Angeles by Los Angeles Sheriff. And sadly, it feels that it speaks directly to the continuation of the pattern of police violence, the killing of community members, and the search for accountability. Pascual, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? My name is Pascual Torres. I'm from the law office of Pascual Torres and also for the nonprofit name Oli Law. Oli is a word from a Nahuatl word from Central Mexico and loosely translates into movement. So Olin Law tries to bring a movement of healing and transformation into the law and most importantly into the work we do. The work consists of representing lifers in prison, in California prisons. So we represent them during the parole hearing, which they have a right to have an attorney present and we just advocate for their rights and hopefully create a path and a plan that will help them get released. The other thing we do is we, we do civil rights, you know, civil rights cases where we try to assist people. Um, for example, being wrongly convicted, been abused by police um, excessive force, and um, situations like that. So yeah, that's what Oli Law does, and I'm a recently admitted uh, member to the California Bar. Pascual, thank you for joining us. Uh, I was looking forward to talking to you because you a while back wrote an article called The Abuse of Power, Violence, It Calls You Back, in which you recount your personal connection to uh, the issue of police violence, police abuse, and the response of that violence upon community and how it affects it. And one of the things that I, I was hoping we could talk about was just that, that perspective that you carry I've been lucky to be able to kind of know you for a while, and we even had a chance to record a while back, a couple of years ago, a conversation about your perspective on the law and uh, this perspective on healing and transformation of trauma as it applies to the practice of the law. And, and today I was hoping you could kind of give us your thoughts on where we are. Most people, I think, are right now keeping track of the multiple uprisings that have been brought forward as a response to the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police officers. And one of the things that I, I find important to address is that for a lot of communities, there's been a lot of energy to protect themselves from police abuse, to advocate for more accountability, and even to the point of, of, uh, of considering a complete dismantling of the police force as an agency that patrols their neighborhoods, these conversations are, are being re rearticulated in the present time. So I, I would like to just pose this question to you, like what are your thoughts on where we are as a community, as multiple communities responding to the police and police violence? 
I guess just to clarify, like the piece, you know, I wrote it before this murder of George Floyd, and it, it just really relates to what's going on at the moment, and it relates to what was happening when I was um, a youth in the 90s in the community of Boy Heights in East Los Angeles. And it's really just like, it becomes, you come to come to clear understanding that change has not happened. And the, the impact, uh, we could say, um, you know, the colonization process continues. So um, this piece really just is based on events, I could say from the past, but it's based on a recent event that happened. There's a video of a, at a police, police officer searching a, a male in the community of Boyle Heights. And the, you know, the, the person, he was being rude, he was not being the nicest person. But for some reason, the police officer just started striking them with close fists and striking them. And, you know, it's just a, a great reminder that they're within the LEPD and within many police forces throughout the country um, exists a mindset of us versus them. So when, whether that, that belief, my belief is, you know, that starts in the police academy. It starts where a concept of like, there's us, the police department, and there's a community. Some communities are going to get protected and served, and some communities are going to get harassed. What determines that has been obviously race, class, standard educational level. Those are things that really determine that who gets justice and who gets the war. And a lot of that is based on zip codes. You know, they call it justice by zip codes. So depending on what zip code you live, depending on what's your experience. So within this article, I, you know, I describe my experience and and how at a as a teenager, young teenager, I had my first violent experience with the LAPD. You know, up until that moment, it was a positive relationship with police. I believe the story that, you know, they were to protect and serve. But when you get um, a violent experience where they get ask us to get against the wall, they search us, they found one teenager was a cooperating, they kicked them in the back. And I kind of laughed, and then an officer hit me with the baton on the rib. So you experience this violence, and you understand, oh, it's not about us. It's about us and them. I also mentioned how in the article, um, the concept of us and them comes from the community of homeboy industries. And it really says that there really is no us and them. There's just us. But until the LAPD starts focusing on that attitude and that mindset, they will really have a transformation. I mean, historically, police departments are part of a colonization process. That's why certain communities get protected and certain communities get the enforcement. And it's a tool. The police has always been a tool of colonization. And what uh, uprising at this moment is, is just people are really upset that this tool of colonization has not been eliminated, has not been transformed, and has not been ended. And it's where the virus continues, this concept of us and then continues. Um, you know, that's the, the title, it's uh, Abuse of Power. You know, people a little older kind of have an understanding of where the LAPD was and how certain situations um, where the abuse of power occur, and it was a consistent pattern and practice within the LAPD. Um, there's examples of the Rampart Division and where well, I like to say the Hollenbeck Division where I grew up, it's just uh, where abuse of power exists. 
changes had occurred over the years in LAPD. And what really is important to note is like, what direction is LAPD gonna go? Are we gonna go one of community transformation or we're gonna go back to the violence? If violence was an option for that officer in Boyle Heights to strike someone, for the officer in Minnesota to kill uh, George Floyd, the officer in Atlanta, this is, you know, these are options for them. Violence is always, I'm not talking about where there's life being threatened. I'm talking about just where violence is an option. So the community in Boyle Heights is nothing new. And that's what basically I discussed. There's nothing new. Changes still need to happen. And fortunately, at that point uh, I wrote it, the results weren't out. But now it turns out that this officer is being charged with assault. And that's great, but if without addressing the institution, it's hard to bring true changes. One of the things that struck me the most about reading your article was this reflection of you being, you know, a 13-year-old young man, hanging out with your friends, and then becoming aware that the police were acting in a way that was surprising to you. And and your response, as you recount, was to laugh, but your laughter is actually something that is stemming out of what I took as an interpretation, like confusion, shock, maybe, because it's not resonating. Like, why is this police officer, you know, kicking my friend? And then even worse, you're in shock when you become struck by the second officer I think a lot of us can recall that moment of uh, awkwardness. And surprisingly, that age, that number 13, is significant. As I talk to a lot of my friends, uh, we recount our stories of encountering the police. And it was about 13. It's when we became, you know, a little bit more recognizable as young men. Because when we were little kids, like let's say seven, the police were very friendly. They, they would even give us uh, Dodger cards, I remember. That was their thing. They would give us Dodger cards, baseball cards. Uh, but somewhere around 13, they stop being friendly and start looking at you through a different filter. And that filter, we learn very quickly, is one of threat to risk. What I find important to highlight is how you mentioned that like violence is always an option. That's one of the things that um, you mentioned right now for the police. And that violence is something that a lot of our neighborhoods, unfortunately, have to contend with. And we have different narratives about our neighborhoods. So if you grew up in a, I grew, I didn't grow up in the Boyle Heights area. I grew up in the South Central area. And it was a black and brown neighborhood that was yeah, was was already kind of granted that credit of violence, even though it was working class folk. Everyone was trying their best. And yes, we had street associations, street gangs, but the majority of us were just regular kids running around trying to fix our bikes, but the police could not differentiate so that I could tell that the way they saw my dad, if he happened to have a white t-shirt on, which is what most people buy, you know, your regular white t-shirt, that marked him as possible a gang member. If I was wearing shorts, you know, and they were a little bit too long, again, it was this awkwardness that we were always self-monitoring. But one of the things that was missing at that time 
was the analysis that you bring forward. One is that the police force was a tool of colonization. So that was something I did not have at the age of 13 in my vocabulary. But I did understand oppression, you know, and, and vulnerability. I think that's something that is, is, is coming forward that, as you mentioned, the communities throughout the United States have lived with this for generations. And your article was written before the killing of George Floyd. But it resonates, I think, still because, as you mentioned, it is a systemic institutional problem. One of the things that I'm hoping you could kind of elaborate on is your take on on your participation as a lawyer or a legal advocate within this area of work that we call like police reform or dismantling even of the police system. You know, if, if you're from LA, you have that experience with LAPD where they gave out Dodger cards and it was, a, you know, it was like, it was fun, you know, Hey, you got cards chasing them. And if they did, they'd give them out. And if they didn't next time. And that was the relationship and, and, it, and it changes. It does change at one point. And I think a lot of it is like, then you're officially on the them team, you know, you're 13, you're 12, depending on, on the era and the community, you're officially them, you're not us. So it's not a, no longer about giving you baseball cards, it's about criminalizing you for standing in the corner, for walking wherever down the street or whatever the situation may be. So that was a concept is like criminalize a certain sector of the community and it doesn't matter how you treat them. It doesn't matter whether you have to treat them like a human being or not because in the concept of us versus them, they're not. And that concept is, you know, you could call it colonization. You could call it us versus them. We could call it trauma versus non-trauma. I mean, whatever we call it, whatever the diagnosis is, it connects to violence. And then, like, why? You know, why? I mean, come on. Like, as a country, like, it's fun. And that's what people at this point, I think, are expressing. Where the untamed violence towards our community is no longer an option. And that's what's being expressed. And that's what I was, I guess, trying to express with this article, you know, talking about, but, you know, these concepts. It's just like, why is it no longer, you know, because the teenagers in the other side of the city, <laughs> that was not their experience. And we know that because people say that, you know, when we try to have conversations. So that's when the questioning happens. It's like, okay, what's going on? Because at this point, it's not about street association. It's about you just imposing your power for no reason, really. And those are the things that are, are key in the community, and we have to start transforming and start looking at it. It can be a complicated situation because it's old rules and old things, but it just needs to be addressed. Like, this is not a problem that can no longer be transferred to the next generation. It has to be solved now, basically, is what people are, are, are saying. We need solutions now. And there's different options out there, but the solution is where it starts where like violence cannot be an option. I mean, it can be interpreted in many ways in different police departments, but it has to start at the academy. What makes me uncomfortable about, you know, looking at this issue of police violence is just how repetitive it is so that 
you know, we're referencing the killing of George Floyd as the person that initiates a mass movement. But just, you know, just the other week, killing of Rashad Brooks in Atlanta that you mentioned is that other repetition. And before that, Breonna Taylor. And when we think about naming, we could go on and on and have a name for every week so that one of the, the, the heartbreaking moments is this realization that even though this is our generation that may be responding, we've been dealing with this since the establishment of the police force. And the establishment of the police force, unfortunately, is something that we have a, a very vague memory of. So that for many of us, it's just standard. But we haven't really questioned, like, where did they come from? Why do they exist? Even though we know as you mentioned, that they serve different purposes depending on what neighborhood you're in. So that the when we think about the, the slogan of LAPD, to protect and serve, uh, many of us didn't feel they were protecting us and they were not serving us because we were in the wrong neighborhood. But we did know that they were protecting other neighborhoods. I remember, you know, when we started going on cruising nights, we would make these cuts through certain neighborhoods and the police would literally ask us, what are you doing here? And I thought that was interesting because like at that time, again, you don't question it. You know it's wrong, but you don't do the analysis. These are public streets. I'm allowed to go through a public street. But the fact that I don't code the right color, the police were making sure that I stayed out of that street. So it was like they had their own private security guards. You know, you, uh, you talk about this sense of like looking at the larger picture you brought up something that you work a lot with, you know, the issue of trauma. How does trauma factor into your analysis of this issue? I mean, I think for the issue of violence, it's, it's, it's the core, at least my experience says, you know, where, so a lot of it is like, how can you transform something? I mean, first you have to start with the diagnosis. Okay. What's going on? I mean, so I think, that concept, it's, it's important, that step. What is that diagnosis? What's happening? So, and the same thing for a lot of us who have experienced violence, you know, whether we were uh, the perpetrators or, or the victims, it's um, the concept of trauma. Like, what came first? The violence didn't just happen. So, Nick, what is trauma? I guess I, I think it's important we should start there. I mean, trauma, and it's a simple definition. We could define it in many different ways, but it's simple. It's an experience that stays with you for a long time and impacts you. Um, so these experiences, it's really what kind of not knowing how to address it. Like you said, like you know something's wrong, you just don't know that how to say it. So we know these experiences that we happen are wrong, but we just don't know how to express it. I mean, First of all, there has to be services available to assist us with counseling and therapy and mental health. And then in the 80s and 90s, that barely existed. And people barely wanted to go to it, even if, if there was available. Because the concept was like, I'm not crazy what I need to go by that. But that's because the diagnosis was wrong. It's like, it's hard. I remember when they asked you, oh, why you join a gang? Or why is it this? Or why is it that? And it was like, you know, we didn't have a diagnosis. Anything like you, you didn't have the right questions. You just didn't have the analysis. But we didn't understand that the experiences as children or at different ex phases of our life, you know, whether it's violence, whether it's drug abuse, whether it's 
sexual abuse, those experiences stay with us. And if we don't know how to start healing and transform them, then, I mean, they are expressed in different manners. And one of the main manners is, is expressed is through violence. So it exists. I mean, it exists on our side, you know, in, in the community sector, it, it exists in the police, you know, force where traumatic experiences are not healed and dealt with and they impact us. And that's when violence is an option in both sides of the community. So trauma is, is a concept that, you know, we've been, been working on for probably going on 20 years. It's like understanding how it impacts the development of a human being, but how it impacts the community. And it's important to understand our experiences and how do, can we resolve them? I mean, there's, you know, not in the sense that there's negative or a deficiency, but how do we transform these experiences so they actually may benefit us? And I think one of the concepts in LPD is like, how can violence no longer be an option? You know, and, it, and same thing, like, you know, when you start understanding and processing trauma and say, okay, what am I carrying? It's the same thing. Like, you, you've got to ask yourself these deep questions. And that's what I think people are leading towards. Like, let's get to the deep question. I think a little frustration is being expressed now, but at some point we're going to have to get what are the issues, you know? What are the deep questions? What are the deep wounds? And like they say, some go over 400 years, some start in 1492. Like, it, it's a long process. And are things events connected? Maybe, maybe not. But that has to be part of the conversation. And it's not isolated throughout in certain parts of the country. Many communities are facing this. Many different type of colors, different economic levels, they face violence from the police force. As I hear you kind of reference this issue of trauma and its legacy, I think about the way that We've been talking about the police force as a legacy of colonization, this historic unfolding of removing communities from their connection to the land, but their connection to being human. And that required violence. And when we think about the police force as the continual perpetrator of violence, one that has legitimate authority to actually use violence, my reasoning or my analysis starts to ask this question that says, what is the function of that continue, continuation of violence on a community as a purposeful traumatizing effect? So that when we think about violence, there's a conversation that keeps being reproduced that says the police are acting inappropriately. There's a couple bad actors, bad apples, but overall they must be good. As I think about that analysis, I find it actually not as useful because what I feel is that many of us have seen the police as standard be violent and then as exceptional be nonviolent. So it's an upside down or an inverse perspective. But then I'm thinking about this question that says, what if, what if that violence is part of the trauma effect that was necessary to continue that colonizing effect, 
that con uh, continuation of that oppressive force. Because one of the things that I remember about my experience growing up is that I was cast as those good kids. You know, I, I was cast as that kid that was going to school, uh, wasn't roaming around with the local gang, wasn't staying out at night. And I, I never did that because I was trying to not be under the radar of police. I literally was just, that's what I had as an opportunity to be. But nonetheless, I was cast under the them category because there was only one blanket, you know, that they could cast or one net that they could cast, which is like, if you have a brown or black body, you're probably a gang member or one of them, the, the bad ones. And the effect to return to your conversation on trauma as this lasting effect is that we were all traumatized. We were all applied that wave so that I, I could think of being in the car and knowing that I was in the back seat and my dad and my mom are driving. And whenever that police officer rolled and followed us, the whole car, everyone in there got quiet and tense and we went home. And I'm just thinking about like, that was this blanket effect that the police was granting toward everyone. But my question goes even further. How do we address that when the police officers are naive? Like we see the ads, like join the police, help your community. I don't think there are a lot of people joining the police seeing themselves as those that are going to become part of the oppressor, so part of the traumatizing agent. You know, obviously it's by design. And it's difficult, you know, like, it doesn't mean like the actual people are bad, right? It's more like the institution is bad. We're not trying, it's definitely not isolated. And it's definitely um, not a few bad apples. It's happening throughout the country. So as a, as an institution and a police force, what their job is, is, I mean, part of it is that's what they're doing. Uh, it's almost like we have to change the job requirements and really have, bring a different understanding. I mean, one part is, you know, People need a way out of the communities, you know. Now it's a lot of people coming from the same communities and have similar experiences as you and I. But it's an opportunity to rise out. And unfortunately, the train is not there. And, you know, so, I mean, it's complex. It's, it's complex. It, it, that's why there's deep conversations. Because some people do believe that it is, that they're serving the community. And I don't want to get into this whole negative that, like, in the last years, the LAPD has been doing positive things. Of course they have. They, like, for example, they've been working with gang interventionists more. For example, they've been involved in a lot of more community meetings. For example, they, um, you know, they assign officers to areas longer, which is great because they, they really know the community. They know Danny's a good kid. He's going to school. They know that compared to this other person that may not. So those are things that have been happening but as institution, institution is always seems to be violence has been an option. Unfortunately, communities of color have experienced that violence. And the idea is gonna really take some, you know, what they're saying, there, there's options now, like they're talking about now defund the police. You know, what, what, what does that mean? I mean, for me, it's, it's not necessarily that, because then people get defund on, on the word, oh, defund. Is, it means like let's put our money where our priorities are at. And for the city of Los Angeles, it's approximately 54% of part of the budget. I believe the city of New York is about $6 billion. So 
that's where the priority has been over all these years. Now, the resources have to be reallocated. We really had to put them to places like mental health to deal with homelessness, to work in the community, give people employment. I mean, these are things where the money has to be shared. And it's really not saying, um, you know, the concept was like, you know, the police force would say, okay, step back, telling all the city officials and politicians, like, we'll handle it, and we're going to handle it our way. And it just really never worked. And not surprisingly, it's not an option. You know, when violence is an option, it's not going to work. And it's a form of, you know, abuse of power. And, and that's what we need to start addressing it. Do we need police officers? Of course we do. You know, of course. It's not, no one's saying eliminate police officers. But the, our priorities need to be shifted. And I think these conversations now are about shifting resources to where our priorities will be. And a lot of it is providing resources for communities that have been neglected for many reasons over the years. I'm hoping we could also talk about where you are now as someone that has been recently admitted to practice law here in California. Does the conversation change for you? Yeah, I mean, things definitely change. Um, like the word that always stick to me when, when I finally decided to go to law school because I wanted to go for a lot of years was access. Access to provide, you know, at this point, protection towards our communities, community members. I'm a young attorney and I'm, Fortunately, I'm already, um, there's two cases that, um, a couple more I'm part of, but part of this work, I think I want to highlight two cases. One is a young woman who two weeks ago went to a protest in the city of Long Beach in support of people, of this whole concept of changing what the police force can be, being a peaceful protest. And for some reason, the Long Beach Police Department shot shot a projectile, which we assume was a rubber phone bullet. And um, while she was filming, it hit her phone and it hit her finger, which basically she lost a third of her finger. All because she decided to exercise her constitutional First Amendment right to speak and attend a, a protest and to film it. So many things were wrong, obviously. And part of it is like now we're able to bring justice and bring some help and she could have someone on her side who she could trust and that knows that are really going to understand the situation she's at and really try to fight the best as possible for her. Another one is uh, a friend who lost her father driving through Texas. Who's a truck driver. The tire popped, front tire popped. Um, and it's possibility that it was defective. And they really just want answers. What happened? How can you bring justice? And part of it is like, yeah, I at least want to sign up to fight hard to bring justice and figure out what happened. And so those are two kind of different, but it's the same thing. It's like people want justice. People just want to understand like, okay, is there someone who we could trust to really fight for them? And I think that's what I want to just offer to people like, look, I'm new, obviously, so I don't know everything, but with, if you could trust me that I'm going to fight and try to bring the best results for you, then, you know, sign me up. If not, then go speak with someone else. So part of it is, like, justice is part of that healing process. Like, people just want 
I mean, it's we just finished having a long conversation. I mean, we could go back over 500 years and, and talk about these injustice actions, starting with the indigenous communities all the way to now. So I think that is where a person who has our experience, like yourself, myself, different people um, who have a community experience, who have a commu- community mind frame, assist people. And that's what it comes down to. So give people access where the justice is going to be just. <laughs> it might not make much sense, but people have to have an opportunity to feel like they were listened to and that they're able to heal their experience, whether you lose a finger or you lose a father. I mean, those are important. You mentioned that like, when you think about the law, there's this moment of justice. And the way that we think of justice, I think, unfortunately, has to do with the ways that representation is factored in. Because as we think about you know, people's grief at the loss of, of, of someone or even physical injury, some people will think about like, well, what is it that you want? It's like, well, I want accountability. And unfortunately, I think we've been too accustomed to believe that there is a system where everyone's accountable um, for their actions, even though we have lived actually a society that proves otherwise that like we've seen police officers walk away without accountability. And we're entering now a, a space where uh, we're seeing the beginnings of something that we hadn't seen before. So we're seeing police officers being fired, police chiefs resigning, police officers actually being tried uh, as opposed to being found without enough evidence to hold a, a, a trial. These conversations about accountability are, are important. And then there's this other part which you mentioned that like, all of us are playing different roles. And one of the things that I find interesting, one of the things I find uh, positive is how we are seeing more and more communities that were previously not in certain areas, such as the legal field, be present. And you're one of those people that I, you know, I've gotten to see um, your, your work existed outside of the legal field before as, as an advocate, as an educator. But now your, your conversation changes a little bit. I feel that now you're you're walking fully all the way to the inside the court, and as they even say, like being able to crossing over uh, over the bar, and I think that's something that is that I'd like to highlight because I, I find it significant to think about how when we talk about accountability and the and the advocacy for accountability, we sometimes forget to factor that we need people in those respective fields to hold the door open, to fight for us, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it just start off. The, I mean, they use the law to colonize us. So we have to have an understanding of it. And some people have to have an understanding of it where they're going to fight it and learn how to argue it and, or use it to our benefit. So, you know, it goes back to that. It goes back all the way to that. What we're seeing... And what we need to be part of is this awakening of a new consciousness that will hold injustice actions accountable. Now I have to answer, like, a lot of it is just honestly is because they're on video. What happens to the, when it's not on video? What happens when, like in the community of Boyle Heights, the officer has a video cam on his body and he still feels like that. 
punch someone in the head over 12 times. You know, stand, put your um, knee on someone's neck for close to nine minutes. So now is the time where the conversation has to include the community. It can no longer just be the LAPD talking amongst politicians and saying, okay, how do we change? It has to be a bigger, it has to be expanded to actually include communities who have this type of experience as the police force, as the basically a military force. So, and also, I mean, the main thing is understanding, also understanding our trauma. What are we experiencing? What are we carrying in? We, we have a saying, like, if you don't transform your trauma, you transmit it. So it's time that we start understanding what are we carrying? And that's a deep question. And that question goes to all of us individually as a community, but even as police forces. People's histories, you know, can create traumatic experiences. So with that, I just want to thank you, Danny, for your, for your time and always a uh, pleasure to come back and, and just talk. Any future questions, we'll be in contact and we'll go from there. Thank you very much. Well, Pascual, thank you very much, man. You have just finished hearing a conversation with attorney Pascual Torres. We shared our perspectives regarding police violence, the search for police reform, accountability, and alternative visions on healing trauma and transformations for healthier and safer communities. The conversation did not address the shooting and killing of Andres Guardado by the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. During that same weekly period, Robert Fuller was also shot by Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies. In sharing the conversation with Pascual, I reflect upon his position on trauma, in particular how trauma serves as a colonizing effect, a terrorizing effect. And as we find ourselves in this repetition of seeing people that we love and care about be killed by agencies that are granted authority to use violence to kill. The effect results in communities feeling less safe, frustrated at the lack of accountability. To paraphrase Pascual, we live in a society where police departments, sheriff departments, can always choose violence as their option. But more so, it becomes their primary option. It's almost as if that is the only language they choose to use. Unfortunately, this conversation sometimes is framed as an us versus them. And the result is a loss of solidarity, a loss of investment. But I believe it is important to consider that we all share this community. All of us are essential participants of that tapestry of our community. And if someone is not safe, all of us are not safe. I hope you found this conversation of interest and relevant and take it to your respective circles to continue. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, or any feedback you may have to the following email. Comments at thereport.org. You can also check out our webpage at thereport.org. I want to thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Daniel here on The Deer Report on KUCR 88.3 FM. Stay safe. 
stay strong. Join us again next week.